So finish this statement. Jonah. Jonah. And the whale. Wow, I really thought that would just come. And that is not the name of the book we're about to study. Not Jonah and the whale. That's actually three verses of the whole story. Not to say I don't have an opinion about that, which I'll be happy to reveal to you if you come back for the next several weeks. And we'll talk about the great sea creature. By the way, whale is never once mentioned in the book. The great sea creature that God used as a means of salvation We'll look at that, but that's not the story. That's just a transition point in a very powerful story of a prophet and a true mission that God sent him on that was completely outside of his comfort zone. Now, you fit probably into one of three groups here in relation to Jonah and the whale. You grew up in the church, and you think of this story as a child story. In my age, it was on flannel graph, two-dimensional cartoons. My kid's age, it would be veggie tales. And you've yet to realize that it's not in any way a child story. It's not. It's a very grown-up story. Others of us are Christians who believe the Bible and just take it at its face value, but probably have never done an in-depth study of the book of Jonah. And then there are those of you here who, in our area, we're very high-tech, a lot of schools, a lot of science, very smart people. And so you come at this book from a skeptic's point of view, even those of you that are following Jesus. Well, you know, that's probably more myth than fact. And that's because you're conditioned to come at things that appear to be illogical to you or against the natural world skeptically. And when we get to it, I'm going to share with you why I believe you can be a reasonable, logical, scientific person of faith who believes that God could certainly have and therefore did save Jonah uh, miraculously through a great creature. This is an opportunity for you to explore the whole nature of belief itself. Because if belief is about whether this seems reasonable to me or not, then why end here? Why accept anything that's supernatural in Scripture? See, is faith the servant of logic and science, or is faith the supreme facility in our lives? Can the God who created the natural world Suspend it. That's really what supernatural means. God operating apart from the laws of nature that he created. I'm asking you to keep an open mind because that probably says more about the capacity of your faith than it does about the integrity of God's word. And it's an opportunity for you to explore that and see if God doesn't have more for you than the limitations you've imposed on your belief system. Does that make sense? So I'm just asking you to stay with us, to come every week. Don't get hung up on your need to see those three short verses in this whole story in a particular way and miss out on the the real story that God has for us. So with that in mind, we're going to dig in. Today, what I want to do is set our sights as we spend the next uh, eight weeks or so 
in the book of Jonah. So I invite you to turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. And all I'm going to do to get us going is read the first few verses. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And thus begins a 48-verse story that is uncharacteristic of most of the prophets because it has no real prophetic utterances except the one sentence message that God gave Jonah to bring to the city of Nineveh. Whereas in most of the prophets, with some exception where there's historical narrative, it's lengthy prophetic utterings, God speaking through the voice of his prophet to the children of Israel. In this case, it's not that. It's a story of an event in the life of one of God's prophets named Jonah. And what we're going to do in terms of laying our backgrounds, that classic research when we ask five questions, who, what, when, where, and why. I'm just going to quickly work through that and give us some of the interpretive tools that we need. So let's first talk about the who. We've already seen in verse 1 that this is Jonah, son of Amittai. The name Jonah means dove or messenger. His father's name, Amittai, means truth. And together, Jonah's name means messenger of truth. He was what we might refer to as a favored prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II which was the last golden era of the northern kingdom. Jonah, let me try to help you understand. Other prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, were those that spoke foreboding and judgment to a disobedient Israel and paid for it through suffering. Isaiah was martyred. Tradition tells us he was stuck in a log and sawn in two. Jeremiah was most likely carried down to Egypt after he saw the final destruction of Jerusalem, the weeping prophet who wrote Lamentations. Now, that wasn't Jonah. Jonah was the TV prophet, if there was such a thing in his day. Jonah was the popular prophet. He's the one that had said to Jeroboam II, it's time for you to take back the land from Assyria. And under that encouragement from God through Jonah, Jeroboam almost restored the boundaries of Israel back to the time of Solomon. Jonah was the positive one. He was the health and wealth prophet. <laughs> he was the one that had the big TV audience and got to say the good news. And here's what's happening. God's going to take Jonah and take him out of that little bubble. And the real nature of his faith is going to be revealed. And that, that says a lot to those of us that are pastors. You know, those of us that are the most popular in prosperous cultures and in cultures where we're blessed and have affluence and relative safety and the ability to worship God with very little suffering, uh, my guess is it's not those pastors that are going to thrive in a culture when they're taken out of that bubble and forced to show the real nature of their faith. And so in that sense, he represents all of us 
not just pastors, but all of us who live out our faith in a rather protected, safe place. And as difficult as some of us find faith in post-Christian New England, what would your faith look like if you were taken out of your bubble and sent to a completely different place? That's what's going to happen to Jonah. Let's talk about the what. This is a very short story about a true event. It is not an attempt to tell Jonah's life story. It's told intentionally not just to tell the facts, but to make a point. A good example of this would be to talk about the many volumes that have been written about Abraham Lincoln. Some have written about his whole life or about his youth and the challenges there. But there are books that you can find that are specifically about Lincoln's signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. What led to that, the struggle of it, the meaning of it. And it's perfectly natural that some would write with the specific intent of helping understand the difficulty of attaining liberty for the slaves and the impact of that in history and to make the moral point that every human being has innate value and the right to self-determination. So you will find people that write about that particular chapter in his life to emphasize that moral truth. That's what's happening with Jonah. It's a story with a moral. There's a point in mind. If you've already read the book of Jonah, you know that it actually ends unfinished. It ends with a question. And one way to interpret the book of Jonah is to see the whole thing as a giant question. The whole story leads up to this final rhetorical question. God saying to Jonah, shouldn't I be concerned for the great city? You could argue that the whole story of Jonah is to ask that question of Israel and of us today. Bear that in mind as we go through it. Where does this take place? It takes place in two places. I've already talked about Israel's northern kingdom during its final golden era. And then the second half of the story, other than on the ship, which we'll talk about, takes place in Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. We will call Nineveh Israel's sworn enemy and all-round evil empire. We need some Star Wars music when the empire comes up. This is Nineveh. By the way, modern-day Iraq, which still is against the existence of Israel. So that goes back to this point in time. They were sworn enemies. And in just a generation, Assyria will rise again and will be the instrument of God's wrath against Israel. Let me try to paint this for you. Jonah being asked to go to Nineveh would be like one of us during World War II being asked to go and stand in the middle of Berlin and call Berlin to confess and turn back to God and God's going to judge you for what you do. It would be like going to Moscow and doing that in the middle of the Cold War. Today, it would be like going back to that very location where Nineveh was and declaring to ISIL that God has seen their evil and they need to turn from it and come to Him, otherwise there will be judgment. How would you feel if God told you to do that? 
Would you feel a bit out of your bubble? That's what Jonah was asked to do. This takes place about 760 B.C. to answer the when. And about 722, a little more than a generation later, this same country that in this story, God spares of destruction because of their sin. That very nation and empire will be used by God to come in. The northern kingdom will be completely destroyed and never be heard from again. And the rest of God's story in the Old Testament takes place with Judah and the southern kingdom. So this is what's about to happen. In the midst of it, God has concern for this nation that's going to devastate Israel, and he uses a Jewish prophet to, you you figure out God's plans. I'm still trying to figure out why he does what he does. Why should we study the book of Jonah? Well, there's a lot of great lessons we're going to learn. I've listed some of them here. There's so much we can learn about how God uses flawed people. If there was ever a person in the Old Testament that we can look at and say, boy, that's a pretty messy person, it's Jonah. And yet God continues to extend grace to him and continues to use him, even as he's struggling to grow and get past his own brokenness and his own prejudice and his own hard-heartedness. God's at work, and he uses flawed people, which, by the way, is one of the themes of the entire Old Testament. Every person in the Old Testament that God uses is flawed, just like you and me. (laughs) I find such, such hope in that and such grace. Another lesson is the cost that comes from not obeying God. How God pursues us in love. Both Jonah but also a distant people from his own people, Israel. He reaches out and pursues them in love. How to get back on track with God. We're going to see this beautiful chapter when Jonah finally reaches up to God. If, if anybody hit rock bottom, Jonah does. And how he reaches out to God is a great pattern for you and me to get back on track with God. And then, of course, it's a story about God's incredible grace. But what I want to do today is to give you what I believe is the essential interpretive key to the book of Jonah, a way of looking at the whole thing. Because Jonah is simply put about sin and grace. You see the definition of sin and grace put forward in a very colorful way. Ultimately, sin is our running from God. And grace is God coming after us. There isn't a story in the Bible that illustrates both of those more beautifully than the story of Jonah. Sin is our running from God. We've been running ever since Adam and Eve first took from the forbidden fruit fell from their innocence. What is the first thing we know that they did? They hid from God. You see, in all of us is this penchant for running from God's direction. It comes with our moral brokenness, what we refer to as our sin nature. We are all runners, or as Tim Keller puts it, we are all fugitives. That's the nature of sin. And what we see in this story is not only those who are 
completely surrendered to sin and its evil results, which is the city of Nineveh, we even see that capacity to run from God from one of his children, Jonah. And so what we're going to learn in this is that even once we come to grace, part of our growth is to stop listening to that voice at every turn, at every moral decision, at every point of pressure that tells us, run, run away. And the incredible pursuing grace of God for his children is that he doesn't give up on us. Scripture says, he who has begun a good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion. Paul says, even when we're faithless, he's faithful to his children. His grace is relentless. At every turn, our broken nature says run. And God chases us down. Colossians 1. Let's close with this. Can you say it with me? Once you were alienated from God and enemies because of your rebellious behavior, but He reconciled you by Christ's death, making you holy and blameless for His presence. The point I want to make here is that the starting point for us to find our way back to God is to recognize that we're running from Him that we are by nature fugitives, and that it's our doing. Here's the thing we want to turn the good news, the gospel into. We want to turn it into our being victims of other people's evil choices. And I can just come to God broken because of all the mean things other people have done to me, and God will heal me, and God will accept me, and I'll be his child. But you see, the barrier between you and the presence of God, the glorious, fulfilling presence of God for which we were created, the barrier between you and Him is nothing that other people have done to you. It's your running. It's your sin. The point at which we can finally turn and look up and find our way back to God starts when we're able to acknowledge I'm the one that's been running my whole life. And that's true of people who are religious and irreligious. That's true of people who consider themselves moral and immoral. That's true of people that are both godly and godless. It is recognizing our brokenness and the decisions that we have made to run from God that allows us to then turn and find our way back. That's the heart. That's the key to finding our way through Jonah in a way that's going to change all of us. Let's take this journey together and let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, just the privilege of seeing your word. I'm reminded as I'm praying right now that this is the Old Testament and yet this God in this book, in the Old Testament, is a God of grace who in love chases us down in order to bring us back to himself, in order to forgive, in order to redeem. And yet so many of us separate the God of the Old Testament. We see him as mean-spirited and vengeful, and we like Jesus, we like Jesus, but that God, uh, that's something else to wrestle with. But yet here we see 
as Jesus taught us when he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That the very God that revealed himself perfectly in Jesus is revealed in the Old Testament to be a loving, gracious, generous God whose heart is to reach out and bring a fallen race back to himself in love and will not give up on that. Thank you, Father, that you're not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Thank you for the grace that we have in you. Father, break us of our running. Accept that we run into your arms. In Jesus' name, amen.